0: A podcast called what am i doing with my life by andrea sadowski <laughs> hello everyone and welcome back to what am i doing with my life i'm your host Andrea sadowski this podcast discusses ways people have overcome and are working through mental health struggles and have found joy in their vocation so if you're still trying to figure out what the heck it is you're doing with your life this podcast is for you Today, on our 12th episode, I'm joined by my friend Robert. It had been a really long time since we'd seen each other. We worked together as shelter workers at a high-volume homeless shelter during the height of both the COVID-19 pandemic and the toxic drug crisis. Robert is an overall amazing human being, he's super knowledgeable on all things mental health and harm reduction. If you want to learn more about harm reduction, safe consumption sites, or any of the other topics we get into during this episode, you should check out the show notes and transcription on my website, I'll have it linked in the episode description below. If you do like this podcast, please leave a comment and a rating wherever you're listening. It really helps more people find these episodes. When you leave a comment, I'll read it aloud on an episode. A comment I got on the last episode with Russell was from my friend Alini in Brazil. She said, you make me think about things I've never thought of before. As a new vegan, I have been collecting a lot of new ideas from listening to your podcast episodes. I'm happy I've met you. You're making this planet a better place. That's for sure. Thank you, Alini, for listening and leaving that sweet comment. I love you, and I miss you. So please leave a comment wherever you are, or just give me a like or share it with a friend, however you want to do this. Anyways, let's get to the episode. Okay, so can you start with your full name and your pronouns and your job title? Uh, I'm Robert Middleveen,
1: he, him, and I'm a program coordinator.
0: Amazing. You're a program coordinator? Yes. That's That, I was just a program coordinator and I quit because I was so burnt out.
1: It's a tough job. Yes. Yeah.
0: So what are you a program
1: coordinator of? Um, so it's a mental health housing site on the downtown east side.
0: Oh shit. Yeah. That's a hard job. It is a hard job.
1: Yeah. I enjoy it. It's very rewarding.
0: Yes. Yeah. So I wanted to have you on because, so we worked at Salvation Army together. Mm. um height of the pandemic like oh yeah this was like may 2020 when i first started and you were also working there and i worked there over the summer i think i quit for the first time salvation army in like september because i couldn't do two jobs and uh and go to university it's a lot anyways we worked at salvation army together and you always like i would just be sitting in that back the fire room and just like be reading the notes and just like be chilling out and you'd come back there and be like wanting to talk about like really deep like access your feelings and like deep topics and I'm like who is this guy why why is he so open about like you just come and be like how are you feeling today I'm like what the (laughs) what what is this that's me
1: to a T yes
0: and you were just not and that was the same way you were the same with the clients too like the way you talked to the clients was just, like, so human. And you also weren't afraid to go there and, like, access. Like, you were so good at boundaries and, like, accessing their emotions and sharing yours without, like, you know, you can't share everything with clients. No, you can't
1: disclose, for sure.
0: Yeah. Um, but you just made people feel safe that they could open up to you. Aw. And it was just a really... I haven't met... A guy who is like so in touch with his emotions like that Mm. um so I think like this field is really perfect for you yeah so let's start like what made you go into this field what have been your personal what has been your journey to get here
1: boy there's been a lot of things honestly um growing up my mom had mental illness Mm. like my whole life so it was just kind of like a normal part of life that people are sick and sometimes people mentally aren't well and Mm -hmm. that they need help and so i think that made me not afraid of it um and not afraid of because i think some people especially when they're new to this field like they're scared of people who are mentally ill and Mm -hmm. they're scared that it's going to be big and scary and intense and like sometimes it is but often it really isn't Mm -hmm. um so there's that um my brother had a psychotic break when i was how old was i think i was 16 he had a psychotic break in ottawa Mm. um and then i had my own mental health journey um was behaving in some pretty interesting ways yeah um and i actually i started going to counseling and met this counselor and it was funny i didn't even mean to the girl i was seeing was seeing a counselor and she's like oh my counselor thinks you sound really cool and wants to meet you mm. um what and like, weird
0: actually it is
1: weird i think they knew i needed help because yeah. we were up to no good let's yeah. leave it at that i don't want to say too much on a podcast but anyways um yeah so i met this counselor and thought they were really cool and then when my own like mental health and substance use was pretty out of hand i actually went to her and i was like uh is getting scary and i could use some help Mm -hmm. and anyway so i went through that and then recovered and i was like i would love to do this for other people like what a beautiful thing Mm -hmm. to spend the time to help somebody figure themselves out
0: Mm
1: -hmm. right um or just be there for people and just like because i I think a a big message a lot of people need especially like the substance use thing is that they matter Mm -hmm. and that they're not bad because they're using drugs or whatever Mm -hmm. um and i was like wow what an easy thing to do for somebody is to just treat them like a human and watch them transform from being treated like a person Mm -hmm. um and so yeah so i went to college and then the opioid crisis started and a lot of people in my community were dying Mm -hmm. like i've lost at this point more friends than i can remember their names oh my god yeah um, so I wanted to get my boots on the ground and that, so I started, uh, doing harm reduction in, at music festivals mm-hmm. through Karmic Harm Reduction Society. Fucking love that organization. I don't think it's really a thing anymore. Oh but no! We did some lovely work. Yeah, good. Um, yeah, and then started working at the Salvation Army. Okay. Um, I think that was right after my brother committed suicide. Mm. So yeah, it's been, it's been a journey. Mental mm-hmm. health has been very much a part of my life. You've been in school also like forever. <laughs> yeah, I, so so funny. I uh, took. I'm graduating. My ceremonies actually this week on Wednesday. Oh my god! Congratulations! Thanks. Thank you so much. I'm so pumped. Um, yeah. So I started school in 2015, and I didn't graduate till now. And part of the reason why is like so. When I was younger, there was a fear of student debt. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when I was younger, I, I didn't really understand debt. Mm. Um, and that how normal it is in our society so I was working to pay for school and then I started doing frontline work with the opioid crisis raging Mm. and I kind of felt like I had to be there Um, because like I said I'm watching my community die
0: um, Mm.
1: and I'm like I can't do that so I chose to do that all through school and then some part of me was like and I'll have a boatload of clinical experience for a master's Mm. um so yeah i i'm glad i did it if i could go to younger me i'd probably be like slow down finish your school don't worry about the clinical experience that's gonna come
0: well it makes sense that like you're literally you're getting the theory and the practice at the same time you can actually like you're actually on the ground doing the work instead of just reading textbooks about it
1: Hundred percent, And I think it actually helped me in school because like, I'd be taking something like, I don't know, they've changed the name of it. It used to be Abnormal Psychology, but that's really stigmatizing. So they changed it, I think, to Psychopathology. Probably still stigmatizing, name for the course, but basically a course on mental illness. And like you're saying, you know, you'd go into work and be like, oh, this is what negative symptoms of schizophrenia look like. Like, this is catatonia. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, interesting. Whereas in a book, you don't really get, I think, a good picture of what that really looks like,
0: mm-hmm. you know. So what's your degree exactly? You're a bachelor of arts in psychology?
1: Psychology with a specialization in uh, pre-counseling.
0: Oh, amazing. At yeah. Douglas, right? Yeah, yeah. And so you're going to go get your masters for counseling.
1: That's the intention, yes. <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> you should. Uh, that
1: or a PhD in clinical.
0: Well, you have to get your masters before your PhD, right?
1: Uh not for clinical psych. The, so it's a clinical psych, it's a 6-year PhD program.
0: Oh my uh, god.
1: And so, cuz there's a there's a clinical component, I think it's 2 years. And you're also doing research as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's pretty intense. And like, so your master's is kind of a part of that. Oh, I see. So like, I think you could do a master's and apply. Like it wouldn't work against you to getting into the clinical program, but you don't need to.
0: Okay. Yeah. Clinical psychologist. Yeah. Or That's doing good.
1: research or whatever. Like yeah. the clinical psychologists do a lot of different things.
0: Yeah, yeah. Cause there's not many of those. Like considering, like we just talked about the wait list to get to a psychologist was like two years or you had nine months. Yeah. So that's because there aren't any? Uh,
1: there's a variety of reasons. Um, so like in, in BC, it's actually funny. I was listening to a CBC podcast about kind of healthcare in British Columbia. And it sounds like in terms of family doctors, at least it sounds like they were saying we actually have more family doctors per hundred thousand people than we ever have. Um, it's just that there's other things that are causing more health problems for people. Like with inflation, more people are experiencing poverty, which can contribute to poor health. Mm-hmm. Like you can't access services, healthy food is less accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, activities that can improve your health, like swimming at the local pool, might be less accessible for people because money's tight, right? Mm-hmm. And um, like housing's less accessible, yeah. or at least it's more stressful for people. So I think mm-hmm. we probably have a lot of people trying to access. These services right now, and like, you know, it just can't keep up.
0: Yeah. So, Robert did an amazing job talking about why people face systemic challenges in accessing healthcare. I just thought i'd do a little fact checking about the subject and i found a recent news article from ctv published february 16th 2024 and it states that the vancouver coastal health region which encompasses richmond vancouver north shore sunshine coast bella bella and bella coola has 104.7 family doctors per 100,000 people which is the highest ratio province-wide in contrast fraser health which encompasses the entire area from Burnaby all the way to Hope. This includes municipalities like Delta, Chilliwack, Agassiz, Abbotsford, White Rock, Surrey, the Tri-Cities, Mission. everything in this region. There's only 66.3 family doctors per 100,000 people. The number of doctors isn't the only disparity between Vancouver Coastal Health and Fraser Health. A 2023 report by the Surrey Board of Trade noted that Fraser Health received $2,229 per person in provincial health care spending in 2020 to 2021, whereas Vancouver Coastal Health received $3,033 per person that same year. Because you stopped working at Salvation Army because of the like 20 bucks an hour, right? Like they just straight up did not pay us what yes. we were worth. Yes. And then you found a better paying job.
1: Yes. I, and I don't think it's for lack of wanting. I remember before I quit going to the director and telling him, I don't want to leave. Mm -hmm. I like working here. We're doing good work as hard as it is. It's, you know, we're doing good work. Um, but I need more money Mm -hmm. because you know, the price thing's going up. It's COVID. Mm -hmm. Like I got bills to pay. Yep. Uh, Things were getting tighter and tighter. And I said like, I'm, I have this other job opportunity yeah um and he kind of said i'd love to pay you more you're worth what they would pay you yeah but i don't have the money
0: yeah non-profit life man that was literally i was a coordinator for a climate change program and i yeah i went to the executive executive director with the very same thing i'm like i have to do side hustles on top of my full-time yeah. job just to make ends meet yeah. i'm struggling i love this job but i can't do it for $20 an hour no I was so bad at talking to my like leadership about wanting more money like that's such a vulnerable position to be in it is and then to be told no is like well I'm kind of fucked yeah so yeah I don't know so it's good that you actually like held to the promise because I stayed on for like months and I was just like ruining in resentment over like how little I was being paid. Yeah. But also I felt like indebted to this program that I needed to keep it afloat that I was like birthing it into the world cuz being a program coordinator you're you know you do
1: everything the you're, whole program. You're holding the program up.
0: Yeah, right. yeah, but yeah. you're not we're not being paid yeah fairly. No. Anyways, how has it been for you? Do you have support? Like, do you have people underneath you helping you or? Yeah,
1: so I've got um, 10 mental health staff. And then how many cleaners do we have? It's our programs. Actually, MPA is a lovely organization. Very lovely. Um, So we've got 10 regular full-time mental health staff. Or no, some of them are part-time. Um, and then we've got cleaners. So we've got housekeeping mm-hmm. in our building that'll help residents clean their suites. Mm-hmm. And then we've also got a cleaner who just cleans like the whole building, like, uh, bathrooms, kitchen, uh, cause we have a big giant communal kitchen the guys can use. It's, it's mm-hmm. a men's only building that I'm working in right now.
0: So it's a men's only low income housing, uh, with mental health. Mental health. health. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Um,
1: yeah. And I'm trying just trying to think, what else? Yeah, and then we've also got, like, management. So I've got, above me, a manager and a director. Like, they're super supportive. Mm-hmm. Super, super, super supportive. Awesome. Um, you know, like, I remember going to them once being like, oh, my God, I'm a little overwhelmed. And like, what can we do to make it easier for you
0: or make you more comfortable? Nice. And, yeah, just super great. That's good. Yeah. The job I'm at now is a low-income housing. The two floors are adults with mental health things and then one floor is youth but the clients are so like independent and self-sufficient mm-hmm. i don't need to do anything you're there you're there because you want to become more independent and self-sufficient so right it's just it's teaching it's like having people come from one point and then like they get better as they stay there and that's was something that I wasn't used to working in the shelter because, especially the youth shelter, like, you would see them come in and an older youth would, who is like, kind of hardened by the streets already and done a lot of drugs at that point would kind of take this younger youth under his wing and then you could see that younger youth, like, in real time just disintegrate, like, over the course of months and, like, I just started to doubt my whole work. I'm, like, I'm here to improve people's lives but I see them coming into the shelter and actively getting worse the longer they stay in the shelter
1: well and that's kind of the thing the hard thing with shelter work is like people are coming to you I wouldn't necessarily say at their worst but in very tough positions Mm -hmm. in a desperate spot Mm -hmm. and like one thing I've learned from working both in housing and in shelters is that when people are experiencing like homelessness or precarious housing like it's hard to recover Like, you're kind of bound to deteriorate because you don't have the things you need to excel in life, right? Mm -hmm. Let's take something as simple as, like, everybody knows, and I know this is stupid and people are probably going to be mad hearing this, but, like, everybody knows exercise, simple thing to make you feel better.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: If you like to bike and you're homeless, you can't keep a bike. It's Mm going to get fucking stolen. Mm -hmm. Like, such a basic thing that you need to take care of yourself, and you can't even have that. Mm -hmm. You know? So,
0: yeah. So you also, so you're in recovery for drug use yourself or?
1: Yeah, in my own way. Yeah. yeah. Does
0: that help you, like you're a peer then to the people that you work with too?
1: They don't know it, but yeah.
0: Oh, no. Okay.
1: Yeah. I think it's, it's like, so just from, from experience with mental health is, and like working with people is I find too much self-disclosure, uh, can be damaging some people it'll help build trust like oh you used to use harder drugs <clears throat> so you understand me mm-hmm. other people kind of like i had uh, one client earlier in my career that i disclosed it to who is al- already in a depression and he he actually the way he took it is you're doing so well when you've been where i've been and here i am in housing and i'm struggling mm. and you're so successful and i'm and i think this wasn't the message I wanted them to get out of it, but the message they took from it was that they could and should be doing better and that they weren't good enough. Um, and that's where I, I was like, I, I think I've talked about how too much disclosure can be damaging. So like, I think you have to be tactful. Yeah.
0: Cause you want them to trust you, but you also don't want them to feel bad or to use your past against you kind
1: of well against themselves like comparing themselves and like it it ended up being fine because I kind of told the person I said like we're very different people Mm -hmm. with very different backgrounds and I've got a lot of things you don't have like I come from like a middle to upper middle class family Mm -hmm. and I'm white and this person was colored and their family is in poverty like I have a lot of resources you don't have yeah like I'm already winning the race just because I'm a white guy from a semi wealthy family yeah um which helped them not make that comparison. And I kind of had to explain to them, like, success is relative to the person, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, we shouldn't compare ourselves to other people when trying to, like, assess what success really is for us. Mm-hmm. You know?
0: What advice do you have for someone who, like... So, st- we both know, like, stigma against drug users is... Mm. It prevents a lot of people from recovering. Um, Hugely. So, like, what would you say to someone who's never done drugs, never had a friend who's done drugs? How would you convince them that someone who does drugs is a human and they're worth investing resources into? You
1: know, this is a very tough question. Um, I'll talk about... I have... Like there's various perspectives I think, and like I'll talk maybe briefly about like when I was younger and first started this career, and I was like kind of a social justice hothead. I'd Mm. probably get mad at that person and Mm -hmm. say some things. To, I think I was looking for an emotional argument, um, and it was it would make a reasonable one. Like I remember once, I was in a um, gas station coming off work and i'm seeing this guy and he's reading the newspaper about the opioid crisis and he kind of he basically in s- saying without saying he said like these people deserve to die because they're using drugs and oh it's their God. fault mm-hmm. and <clears throat> i thought about it and i said to the man i said you know or actually he bought a package of cigarettes and i said to him i said how did you start smoking and he kind of Tells me this story about when he's young and whatever, and it's pretty innocuous. It started as innocuous, and now he's still smoking twenty years later. And I kind of said to him, I said, and this wouldn't work with everybody because not everyone smokes. And I said to him, like, do you realize that most people who start using, you know, heroin, fentanyl, crystal meth, whatever, it probably started just as innocuous, started just as curiosity mm-hmm. or trying to alleviate some sort of pain, like you're doing with tobacco, mm-hmm. and it. You could see him go, okay. And I said, now imagine cigarettes are illegal.
0: Mm.
1: They're unregulated. And mm-hmm. there's fentanyl in your cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And you could die. Do you deserve to die mm-hmm. for smoking? And, like, I th- it was manipulative. Let's be real. Um, and I don't, like, again, now I don't think that's how I deal with it. I think I was young. And mm-hmm. I was angry.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, like, f- f- pretty fresh from mm-hmm. addiction. Um So I think I took it personally, and I think it had an impact on the man, and I hope it did, because it made him kind of go, oh, crap. Mm -hmm. Um, And I kind of told him, like, you know, we we have a right to know it's in our food. They legally have to put the ingredients on food, Mm -hmm. and people should also have the right to know what's in their drugs yeah and he kind of went oh shit and especially the tobacco thing because like imagine if our food supply was getting contaminated with something like fentanyl and people are like the government would be up in arms Mm -hmm. like we would they would shut the plant down Mm -hmm. for whatever it was in the food that was killing people Mm -hmm. or alcohol would be the same thing like Mm -hmm. the company would have lawsuits at the wazoo like all of society would be screaming for change Mm -hmm. um and so I've kind of said those things to people the other like now that i'm older and maybe less emotional is like i've realized like and it depends on the person but if somebody's like relatively rational i find typically i can ask questions to address the concerns that they might have like for example like um you know in maple ridge where we were working a lot of people were anti-injection site Mm -hmm. and the reason why is they were worried about needles and playgrounds Mm -hmm. and i'm like that's so real Mm -hmm. like as someone who wants to maybe have children one day like i would be really upset if my child got hurt by a needle Mm -hmm. but this is where i would educate them saying we're gonna have less needles in community if people can go to a safe consumption site and have a safe place to dispose of those needles Mm -hmm. and they kind of go okay, I hear your point. They're like, what about the needles they're getting from the injection site? And it's like, we can hire people who are using drugs Mm -hmm. to pick up trash, including needles, Mm -hmm. and it gives them a job and purpose, which is probably going to help in their recovery. Mm -hmm. And also, it helps the community Mm -hmm. as well. Um, It
0: was so funny in the Salvation Army, I thought that... You know, you can't use drugs on property It's like, that's a big no But we would hand out harm reduction supplies And be like, hey, go use in the bush, bye And it's like, what the And yet we still had, you know, one or two overdoses every shift You know, that did not stop people from using No Um, No. It just
1: meant we had to go run to the bush Yeah, (laughs) yeah we did, we did, I remember And we
0: weren't allowed to We'd get in shit if we left the property And to respond to an overdose I did it anyways Yeah, no, me too I felt like I was I was very fresh. I got into the field because I dated a guy who was a full blown addict and mm. I couldn't help him and I was codependent as fuck. And I'm like, okay, if I can't help him, maybe I can help someone else. And so I got into that field. And so I was not used to there was many staff at the Salvation Army who were ex-addicts themselves and ex-homeless people themselves and so they were so hardened and so used to the shit that they were seeing and for me it was just like shocking stuff ever and for them it was just like any other day
1: I think it did shock them they just didn't admit it
0: really oh yeah So this is when I just trauma dump to Robert about a few of the more traumatic overdoses I attended and an abusive client situation and substance use issues that I had, all this stuff that's too personal to put out into the world at the moment or would be unethical to put on a podcast. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I just wanted to add this little transition here so that this podcast makes a little more sense because it gets kind of choppy in this area. But, Robert, if you're listening to this, thanks for letting me spew my trauma out onto you. Anyways, let's go back to talking about something I can actually put.
1: <laughs> okay. Um, we could definitely chat after, too, if you want. Yeah. <laughs> we got some shit to get out. I want to hear it. Dude. Sure. <laughs> it was a hard place to work.
0: Yes. Yeah. So. What actual questions do I have? <laughs> um, okay, talk about working at harm reduction at the festivals and the raves.
1: Oh, music festivals. Oh, man. That was that's like, my favorite job.
0: Yeah, that's like your scene, right? Like, you go to raves all the time. So, yeah. what was it like working in the harm reduction tent? It was fucking
1: awesome sometimes it was really hard too but it was really nice to work with your community because like you said like i rave a lot Mm -hmm. um that's probably one of my favorite things to do in my free time is like go out and dance and be with lovely people who are like-minded um and so it was like really empowering as somebody who is like recovering from substance use and i I didn't realize it at the time but i think it was actually therapeutic for me because i got an opportunity to see people who were kind of sometimes people would show up maybe not in a great state of mind. And like, they'd have like a lot of shame that they were not that in that not great state of mind because they took drugs mm-hmm. and it was really empowering. I think to kind of tell people like, you're not the problem. Like this is just a thing that happens to people sometimes mm-hmm. and it's not your fault mm. and you are, a worthy person mm. who deserves to be cared for. Mm. And like, I'm gonna sit here with you in this discomfort and mm. we're gonna get through it. Mm. And they would, and they'd feel better. And you could tell that they felt impacted and empowered um, in that space. And it kind of actually, because even after I'd stopped using hard drugs, I, I think there's still this, because society's narrative is that you're a bad person.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And by going and t- telling, other people who are using drugs, you're not a bad person for using drugs and you deserve to be cared for. Mm -hmm. Um, It kind of like saying that to other people was almost like saying it to myself Mm -hmm. too. And my own self-worth increased like tenfold. Mm -hmm. And I recognized that there's nothing wrong with me for using drugs. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's nothing like fundamentally I'm not a bad person because I'm doing this um i'm just a person who got into some poor circumstances right Mm -hmm. um and so it was really empowering to do that and also to see like sometimes people would show up um in just normal state of mind like looking for information so it was empowering to like give people information to make informed choices about their substance use um in a way that like wasn't it wasn't fear-mongering and it also wasn't like um, condoning the drug use, like so the thing with harm reduction is like you're not supposed to condemn or condone drug use. We just give people information about mm-hmm. what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And so it's like really cool to give people that information and see them use it in a way that would like enhance their quality of life mm-hmm. um, or or even just the quality of their trip for some folks.
0: It speaks to like the huge umbrella that is harm reduction. Like people don't realize like when you wear a helmet when you ride a bike, that's That's harm harm reduction reduction. yeah Yeah. like putting on your seatbelt in the car putting on sunscreen on a sunny day all that is harm reduction like we all practice harm reduction every day wearing a condom like that's everything is
1: oh huge yeah Mm -hmm. or even like you say just talking to people about um the condom is a good one you brought out talking to people about their sexual health and i think that had a big impact on people Mm because they might be experiencing currently at that moment an std scare Mm -hmm. and they're worried and they don't feel like they can talk to anybody and they feel very isolated and then to have somebody come to them and be like oh yeah this is a thing that happens to people and like it's okay to have sex it's normal to want to have sex and like here's what we can do to like deal with this and just treat them like a person and like see how much not stigmatizing that person changes their whole experience of it it's like there's nothing wrong with me it's just this is a thing that happens i'm a human i'm in a body that's prone to disease because That's just what happens Mm -hmm. when you're a living organism, Mm -hmm. right? Like, there's nothing wrong with you, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, So,
0: in the perfect world, if you were running... If you were mayor of Vancouver or, like, mayor of the world... Okay. How would you go about this crisis we're in? Like, would you go, like, Portugal's route? Like, everything is legal and... Or, like, regulation? Like, what... What would you pump resources into?
1: I think we need legalization. I think that would be great of substances. I how you would do that safely and effectively, that's something I'm not sure of.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: I think like there's even more to it than that though. Like right now, like if you if you look at the data, like housing prices have gone up significantly. Yeah. Rental prices have gone up significantly. And if you look at in the past when housing was more affordable, we had significantly less homelessness, significantly less like illness and disease related Mm. to, I think, poverty and financial insecurity. Mm -hmm. And I think that would be something big that we have to respond to as a harm reduction measure. So I think it's more like... Like
0: Like universal income?
1: uh, Not necessarily. Like maybe doing things just to there's a bunch of different strategies and like i'm not the expert on this but i know there's a bunch of different strategies to like improve access to housing Um, Mm. and some of it's like um, controlling rent maybe the foreign buyers tax that was a strategy i know uh, victoria recently um, imposed a law that people could not have airbnbs unless they lived in the building or on the property that the airbnb was in And so that increased the number of houses on the rental market, which actually also drove the market price down because now there's, you know, uh, more supply to keep up with the demand. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, one thing issue we have in Vancouver is uh, there's a lot of bylaws that make it difficult to build
0: um, large housing units like single uh, like an apartment type Mm -hmm. thing. Um, Do you think it's a little fishy all the fires that have been happening in the downtown Eastside? Oh like, boy! <laughs> I won't get to that
1: on a podcast. No. <laughs>
0: yeah. So Robert didn't want to comment on this situation, but I feel like I need to add a little aside here. Um, there are high fire risks in single room occupancy buildings that are run by nonprofits as low income housing, mainly to serve people with addiction and mental health issues. SROs have a such a high fire risk because the buildings are often very old and more often than not have an overloaded electrical system as well as outdated and broken systems for alarms and sprinklers residents also resort to unsafe tactics to stay warm in buildings with poor heating according to a report presented to Vancouver City Council earlier in 2023 fire crews responded to more than 220 fires at SROs in 2022 more than double the number seen in 2018 and more than 400 people living in SROs were displaced due to fires in 2022. There's a number of strategies
1: that should be used as harm reduction, and it's not not all of them are necessarily drug related.
0: Mm-hmm. Right? Like some of it should just be cracking down on price gouging. Like even uh, yeah. in the grocery store, like why are they inflating their food prices so much when they don't need to? it's
1: like a monopoly yeah you know and if you look at it yeah and and these things i think are driving our housing crises and stuff and is why we're seeing so much homelessness and suffering is because you know um we're in this weird neoliberal space where you know the dollar for the wealthy is what matters more than um the quality of life of the people in our country and i I, honestly it scares me and climate change is also driving a lot of this as well yeah um climate change is a healthcare issue it's a addictions issue you know mm. um yeah
0: yeah i never thought about it like that actually yeah.
1: yeah i think one of the greatest things i learned in my bachelor's degree was near the end in uh it was both in a health psych and a critical psych class where they taught us no, like obviously we learned about like specific health things and how mental health impacts physical health, but also to like look at like the bigger picture and how that impacts both people's physical and mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, you know,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. like holistically. Yeah. Yeah, more yeah.
1: Holistically. Yeah.
0: So have you ever experienced burnout?
1: Yeah. Oh yeah.
0: How have you dealt with that?
1: Various ways. Um, at the shelter, what example is asking for more money. <laughs> yes. and i know that sounds silly but like let's kind of go back to what i was talking about before where like you we all want to have a certain quality of life mm-hmm. and if you're not making enough money you can't mm-hmm. have a quality lo- of life which means that you can't do things that you normally do to cope with burnout mm-hmm. right like maybe you can't afford to go to that show you know once every couple months with you can't even
0: afford therapy therapy is 120 an hour easy
1: yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. right What the heck So, and like, so how can you take care of yourself in a way that makes you able to do a high stress job when you don't have the resources you need to care for yourself? Mm -hmm. Um, Right. And so, with the shelter, I I, again, it was hard work and rewarding, but that's why I had to leave because I didn't have enough money to live the quality of life that I would have liked. And then I'm just trying to think. Another place I left, I'm not going to name the organization because no. I don't think that's useful, but prior to working at MPA, I worked at an organization where I, 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 I'll say I don't think management was very supportive when we were dealing with a lot of high stress situations, medical crises, violence, overdose, uh, death, like quite literal death. Mm. Um, and so I just left that organization. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I recognized like you need to be supported and valued and, so then I was working at MPA, and that's been fucking awesome. Amazing! They're a great organization. Management very much cares about our well-being, I think. Good, um, yes. Which is important. And I'm trying to think, like, I've gotten burnt out at MPA. One thing I did is I took less courses in school at one point, and then at another point, um, like I said, I'd been avoiding student loans, but for one semester I took student loans because I said, I need a break.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I worked or I did full-time school for four months and I'd work here and there as a casual, typically graveyard shifts because they're pretty chill. Um,
0: and you can do a lot of homework during graveyard shifts. Oh, exactly. Yeah. yeah.
1: So that And that really helped with burnout too. And then um, I think after that, they had a job posting for their mental health resource center and I worked there as a casual and knew it was lower impact. Like we were doing a lot of therapeutic recreation, um, nice. which like super great for clients and super great as a staff you mm-hmm. know like i would do things like take clients out kayaking oh my god what yeah and like i love to do that and it was great and they loved it too the clients and management because now like they have this dream. guy who's like excited to take the clients kayaking. yeah you, know. you got
0: paid to go kayaking that's yeah. wow yeah. yeah that's amazing that's like yeah. my dream
1: yeah it was great you know and it was really therapeutic i think for the clients to mm-hmm. benefit hugely Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah, I got to take them hiking a couple times. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it was really lovely, and so I did that to deal with um, to kind of recover from burnout because I've been doing this for a long time. Like, yeah, I don't know, maybe since if you include like the festival harm reduction, probably since like twenty sixteen. Wow. So it's been years. Okay, years. Um, so yeah, I worked there for quite a while. Then they had a posting for a coordinator, um, right. and I was I was actually. Not to say, I, like, we weren't working, but I I personally like working in challenging environments, and that was, again, it's therapeutic recreation, so it's pretty relaxed, which mm-hmm. is good, but it wasn't challenging enough for me, so I took the coordinator role. Mm. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. That's my supervisor asked me the other day, um, like, would you go back into a coordinator role, like a higher, because, like, right now I, mean, I feel like I'm, literally resetting my nervous system like after so long being in like a high stress demanding low paying job and now I'm getting paid more than I ever have to basically just sit and watch cameras and talk to whoever wants to talk to me that late at night Mm. it's amazing I don't I don't why would I want high like for three dollars more an hour to completely just like shift everything and be all stressed out again
1: yeah that's fair i think that's a good question i think it depends on where you're at right Mm -hmm. Um, like if you if you recover like again for me like i personally for myself i'd love to go back into certain challenging positions just because like i love working with people who use drugs and i'm very good at it Mm -hmm. and like i think they need like like thank you for the compliment but and they need someone like me who can treat them like a person Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know um And there's a lot of value to that as hard as it is. But I think there's a shelf life, Mm -hmm. right? And then you need a break Mm -hmm. before you can go back to doing that sort of a thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: So do you guys have a, um, what's it called? A safe consumption site on site?
1: No. So the program I'm in historically was an abstinence based program, um, I think there are historical reasons for it. I don't know all of them wholly, um, and that was a bit of a challenge for me coming in from a harm reduction point of view, mm-hmm. but then I learned very quickly, like if somebody relapses, they don't evict them, mm-hmm. right? Cause that doesn't help anybody recover that mm-hmm. just makes them stressed out and probably use more and get sicker, mm-hmm. um, which is good. You know and there's harm reduction services nearby people can access if they need so they're not deprived of that and like i i'll be honest i was i had like moral conflict with it at first but then i realized like i looked at guys in the building and some of them have been in recovery and living in that building for 20 30 years and to have somebody around them who's using substances could jeopardize their own journey Mm
0: -hmm.
1: of recovery Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: so i realized that like having some buildings that are harm reduction focused and people can use in, and having some that are abstinence focused for to support other folks who are abstinent it's harm reduction for those people Mm
0: -hmm. and so
1: to deprive them of that resource and service would jeopardize their health in some cases Mm -hmm. um which is a huge learning experience for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also reminded me that, like, abstinence is the ultimate harm reduction. Um, yes. You know, like, drugs won't hurt you if you're not using drugs.
0: Yeah. Do you ever clash heads with um, co-workers or people, like, who are, yeah, 10, 20, even, like, five years sober, and they, yeah, were deep in that life, and now they're sober, and now they're very anti-harm reduction because of that rhetoric, like like we can't be giving out paraphernalia and giving out this information. Like we're just encouraging drug use and what they really need to do is get clean. Like that's the only way forward.
1: Yeah, I have. And so the way I've kind of learned to understand this through listening to those people and also like taking my experiences, like there's different routes for people, I think to mm-hmm. get to recover and some people, maybe that harm reduction would jeopardize them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, And, but then I think of like myself and other people I know who maybe wouldn't have stayed alive long enough to recover had they not had those harm reduction services. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think I would be alive without harm reduction today. Mm. And I think I've said this before, like a, you need to keep people alive long enough to get to recovery. You can't get better if you're dead. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is, is like people equate recovery with sobriety and like, I don't like we're imposing our values and our goals on other people mm-hmm. right and i i think some of these people that work in healthcare and addictions mm-hmm. don't recognize necessarily that they have a bias and that they're applying their own personal goals to other people mm-hmm. and because that's working for them they think it's the only way forward um Whereas like some people, maybe their goal isn't to be abstinent because maybe their life is unbearable without substances. And Mm -hmm. so we need, I think it's valuable to find ways to make people's lives bearable Mm -hmm. and comfortable um, while respecting their choice to use drugs or not. Mm -hmm. And like I've seen programs on the downtown east side where like I didn't work at it, but I, I read a story of a lady who lost a lot of her life stuff to heroin, like, you mm-hmm. know, her housing, her child, whatever, got into this program where she was getting um, safe supply heroin given to her by a doctor. She can inject it every day and she started working again. She's able to maintain housing. She's able to function. Mm. Like you and I, and nobody would know that this person's using heroin mm. daily, like three times a day. I, I think she was... I don't know if she's able to get her kid back or not, but she at least was able to have a relationship with Mm -hmm. her child again. And like, if her life is unbearable without it, like why would we take that from someone? Why would we condemn someone to suffer for their whole life? Mm -hmm. You know, when their goals are, yeah, I want to work and I want to have a house and I want to be a productive member of society. Like why should we deem their use of a substance? Meaning that they're not worthy of these things. Mm-hmm. right and so I think that's the issue is like people fail to see that people can still have their humanity while they're using like yeah. another example is even like we look at these OAT programs often and what a lot of people think is that people go on these OAT for reference it's opioid agonist therapy so people take an opioid uh, agonist attaches to the opioid receptor but anyway so they take this and they're no longer withdrawing yeah and so i like I'm, methadone right like methadone yeah, is a yeah. great example and so i or cadian yeah um suboxone uh, another example i knew i knew someone who was taking um methadone and i'm not going to name them but it was somebody who used to like knock down banks and stuff like mm. very hardcore addiction and every time they went off methadone they were back to knocking down banks
0: mm-hmm. um
1: And so they just stayed on methadone, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: right? And they were very successful. They were a manager in a large company making lots of money, living a comfortable life, and they're using methadone every day. And like again, if this is what keeps this person out of jail and keeps them functioning and keeps them being a a great father to a lovely family, like Mm -hmm. why on earth would we take this away from somebody? Because the message people get is you go on OAT and then you have to come off. Mm. and it's like if this is what keeps people functioning Mm -hmm. why would we rob them of that
0: yeah
1: um and again i think it's just imposing our own values and our own goals onto other people totally probably because it scares us because we're scared that we would go down a dark rabbit hole and i think that's the case for a lot of these people who think abstinence is the only way because maybe for them they would go down a
0: dark rabbit hole yeah um yeah true yeah What's your future aspirations then? What does it look like 10 years from now in the life of Robert?
1: If things go absolutely the way I want them to, I'll either have a master's (laughs) in... Well, life gives you surprises. (laughs) sometimes We all know that. I would love to have either a master's in counseling psychology or a PhD in clinical. Um, If I went the counseling psychology route, I would love to work private practice however many days a week and then work somewhere that's accessible to people who can't afford counseling normally mm-hmm. maybe the other two days. So maybe do three private practice just as my bread and butter. So I can live comfortably, mm-hmm. you know um, you don't get into this work for the money, but like also we all, we got to eat, Yeah, you know, you got to go on that little vacation to yeah. reduce your stress of the job. Right? Yeah. Um, so yeah. And then work probably in some sort of nonprofit for minimal money the other two days a week Mm. um you know because then you know like i think we mentioned earlier somewhere that um counseling is expensive and inaccessible for a lot of people so Mm -hmm. that's one way to address it as as an ethical counselor and then if i did a phd in clinical oh boy it'd be cool to work in a hospital for a while yeah it'd probably be really stressful so that would have a shelf life as well
0: like working in the psych ward it's like word or, um, like the government sometimes
1: needs people to do like assessment for youth mm-hmm. who are disabled and stuff mm-hmm. just to assess what their needs are. Even adults, you know, to assess what, what kind of needs they might need mm-hmm. have, right? Or brain injury or whatever. Anyways, mm-hmm. um, lots of things you can do with that. And then maybe do a bit of private practice as well at some point, maybe mm-hmm. when I'm older. Cause like I said, the hospital would have a shelf life. I'm sure,
0: mm-hmm. you know, awesome. Yeah. Okay, so what would, what advice do you have for people who are struggling with their mental health and just being able to get out of bed and go to work is almost impossible for them? Like, you've had bad mental health, but you're still, you know, you're working a full-time job. Like, how do you do it? What do you tell yourself?
1: There's so a lot of different things. It depends where you're at. Like where I'm at with my mental health now is like leaps and bounds from where I was in my youth. Mm-hmm. Um I think there's a couple things I'd tell people. Like for one, like recovery in and of itself is a full-time job. Mm-hmm. Whether it's substance use, schizophrenia, depression, anxiety, I don't care how big or small it mm-hmm. is. And these things all lie on a spectrum, which is something to remember too. Some people have depression and can go to work every day and will go see their friends and keep a clean house and all that. Mm -hmm. And then there's some people who are so depressed, they can't get out of bed. They can't even have a shower. Mm -hmm. Right. Like different people may need different messages. And like, I'll go back to like what I was saying before about success and success, I think is really defined by the individual and their context. Right. Mm
0: -hmm. And I think
1: it's really important for people who are recovering to remember, like I said, recovery is full-time work. It's lifelong work Mm -hmm. and success is different for different people. Like Mm -hmm. if you're severely, severely depressed um getting out of bed in the morning and just moving to the couch might be success Mm -hmm. right brushing your teeth might be success Mm -hmm. you know um whereas somebody who's got you know a type of depression where they can get up and go to work every day and all that for them success might be starting to do activities you enjoy again because you've probably stopped doing that yeah right um if you like gardening maybe do a little bit of gardening and start small it doesn't have to be you make this gigantic beautiful victorian flower mm-hmm, garden it mm-hmm. can be i'm taking care of a pothos in my bathroom
0: mm-hmm. or
1: a cactus that i water once a month
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know um start with something realistic because if we set such high expectations for ourselves um we could be condemning ourselves to failure yeah. which might actually make our mental health whatever's going on totally. worse, right so we have to be realistic mm-hmm. and start small and if something isn't working, recognize maybe it's not a problem with you. Maybe there's barriers, and let's identify there's barriers. Is the goal mm-hmm. too big?
0: Mm-hmm. Do
1: you not have something that you need to reach that goal? Like, let's go back to the gardening one. Maybe you don't have a vehicle to go get soil,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? And then the other thing is reach out. Maybe you go talk to your friend and say, hey, man, like, I'm depressed, and, like, I'm trying to get back into gardening. I can't get soil, and I know you got a car can mm-hmm. i borrow it or could you take me to get soil and your friend will probably be like fuck yeah dude let's get mm-hmm. some soil let's fight that depression mm-hmm. you know so yeah or like and for people with schizophrenia like let's go that heavy too like success might be just staying in a hospital for six
0: months mm-hmm.
1: you know And fucking good for you if you yeah. can do that like fuck yeah yeah you know
0: so what aspect of your job brings you the most joy and fulfillment
1: treating people like people yeah yeah um it's probably the most human i've ever felt in my life wow is treating another person like a person mm-hmm. um and it kind of like gives you your own humanity mm-hmm. um, especially like with people who use drugs because you they get dehumanized a lot mm-hmm. and when you've had that experience you know that pain and so it's like Again, like I said earlier, with like the harm reduction at festivals and how that's had a positive impact for me is like the benefit I get from working with people with mental illness is like being rehumanized myself by mm-hmm. cho- giving that to other people, and it's almost like a mirror of like you are a person too mm-hmm. who's worthy of care and love.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, that's beautiful.
1: um Yeah, and so it's really affirming for me and. Uh, getting to use my greatest strength, which I think is compassion, mm-hmm. you know? Um, nice. cause I, yeah, I fucking love people. Yeah. <laughs> people are great. Life's good. hard and people are great. Good. Yeah.
0: So a success story then something that made you go, wow, I'm glad I got into this field. A success story.
1: Well, that's a good question.
0: If there are, there must well, be some, right?
1: There are. And again, success is defined mostly by the individual. You know, it's funny. The successes often look like little things that people might not recognize as success. Like a client getting their driver's license and Mm -hmm. being so proud of themselves. Mm -hmm. Having a big smile on their face, Mm -hmm. you know? Or, uh, I don't know, somebody reconnects with their family. I love seeing that shit. Mm -hmm. You know? And you're like, fuck yeah. Yeah,
0: that's a good one.
1: You know? At the festival thing, like watching people work through... A psychedelic crisis, because that can be really intense. They've mm-hmm. taken some psychedelic substance and they're feeling extremely uncomfortable. Yeah. And they're very worried.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: just listening to people and kind of, like, reflecting things or maybe normalizing their experience. Like, you know, people experience ego death sometimes, and that can be quite uncomfortable for some folks.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And kind of explaining to them, like, this is a normal side effect of LSD. Mm-hmm. You lose your sense of self sometimes. Mm-hmm. And they kind of go, oh, okay, it's normal, so I don't need to be scared. And it's like, yeah, and Mm -hmm. it's okay to be scared because sometimes life is scary, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So, like, and those are success to me. Or I remember when we worked at the shelter, we had one guy um, come back who had, you know, gotten housing and was working a full-time job and living a pretty normal life. Nice. You know, yeah, yeah. Or even, like, with guys in housing that I've seen, like, avoiding the hospital is a great success.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know? Um, yeah.
0: Nice, good. And yeah. what's the shittiest part of your job?
1: Oh, the worst part of my job. <laughs> um, watching people do things that reduce their quality of life Mm -hmm. and not being able to do anything about it yeah because ultimately it's up to the individual totally like we can't make anybody make what we think is a good choice Mm -hmm. and like having to remind myself that this person is probably making this choice because they have information I don't have about their life and their own history and their own context that makes this choice seem rational. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they've lost free will for whatever reason, whether it's brain injury, substance use, their mental illness is mm-hmm. overriding their ability to reason, mm-hmm. perhaps. Um, yeah, and like having to watch people do that and not being able to do anything about it. Um, it can feel helpless mm-hmm. and like people say oh you have to remain objective but like when you work with people long enough like you develop a connection with them totally. like you put humans in the same space frequently enough they're gonna care about each
0: other yeah right totally there's one thing i learned is that you can't guilt someone or will someone into recovery like it has to be 100 1000 their decision otherwise is not gonna work i think if you
1: well and even research says if you try to force somebody into it you can actually harm them yeah more than that and so we have to recognize that it's important to empower people and give them information and hopefully they make more informed choices
0: yeah totally yeah so do you have any parting thoughts on mental health or vocation or finding joy in your vocation despite mental health
1: (laughs) (laughs) okay interesting That's a very good question. I think people should go easy on themselves. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Life's hard. Do something joyful. Yes. Hug a tree. Tell your friend you love them. Yeah. You know, talk to people when you're struggling. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's at work or at home or wherever, you know, Mm -hmm. reach out. Mm Mm-hmm. You're not an island. Don't be an island. Yeah. Yeah.
0: People care. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Somebody does somewhere. Maybe Mm -hmm. you just haven't met them yet if you are alone. Mm -hmm. you know start looking
0: yeah yeah amazing okay amen
1: fuck yeah dude
0: (laughs) (laughs) many thanks for listening if you like this episode please leave a comment share it with a friend and subscribe to my newsletter to never miss an episode you'll find a link to subscribe in the description of this episode if you listen to the very end of this episode i share a secret with you This week, my secret is that I have a really bad habit of stealing forks from my workplace, inadvertently. I'll be eating my lunch with a fork that I grabbed from the office cutlery drawer, and when I'm done, um, I just put the container that my lunch was in back inside my little tote bag, along with the fork that I was eating with completely forgetting that's not my fork and if you do this enough times eventually there will be no more forks left in your workplace cutlery drawer and your boss will be like where are all the forks and you'll have to shrug your shoulders and be like i don't know they must have just walked off somewhere (laughs) okay so that's all for now thanks for listening and i'll talk to you later maybe next week maybe the week after who knows okay bye